morning and again glorifying God with our time. For those visiting the church for the first time this morning, thank you for being here as well. Uh, we, uh, we love the fact that you've, you've come and uh, chosen to worship with us this morning and we'd love to meet you so we encourage you to visit the Welcome Center out in the lobby uh, outside, uh, outside in the lobby in the foyer uh, after the service. There'll be some folks there to, to meet you and get to know you and give you some information about the church and so uh, we do hope that you're encouraged and blessed by your time this morning if you're visiting with us for the first time. Uh, as for annou announcements, I want to remind uh, the church of a couple things. First, service times through Sunday, July 5th will remain at 9 and 11 a.m. And we'll have child care for kids' birth to pre-K. And then on Sunday, July the 12th, we go full. We go back to full programming with Sunday school for kids and youth and adult Bible fellowships for adults. And so we are excited about that Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, it's going to be a wonderful day to, to come together and just sort of reopen the church fully. Uh, you'll be reminded of this plan plenty of times before Sunday, July the 12th, and so be looking forward to that. Secondly, uh, we have Vacation Bible School coming up in about a month. It starts on Monday, July the 20th. And uh, so there's a call for volunteers in your bulletin and some general information about uh, VBS. We'd encourage you to check your bulletin out about that. And then lastly, it is Father's Day today. So happy Father's Day to all of you dads out there. And I would like to close my time by praying for you as dads and as fathers. So if you'll please join me in prayer this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, on this Father's Day, it's a supreme joy to affirm the fact that you are the father we've always longed for and needed. Our most loving and engaged fathers have been a wonderful taste of what it means to be your beloved children, but they will never, they could never, be to us what you are. We thank you for adopting us through the finished work of Jesus into your family. We thank you for freeing us from the slavery of sin and our orphan-like ways, for giving us the spirit of sonship, for giving us a secure place in your family. We thank you for the inheritance you've given us that can never spoil or fade. We thank you for being the father of compassion, for being the God of all comfort. We thank you that you've promised to complete the good work that you've started in us and always discipline us through your love. We thank you, Father, for the grace that you've given us in our earthly fathers. Uh, and we pray that we would give them grace as well when they fall short, when they don't love us as, they in, as you intend. Father, they, they've broken our trust many times. They've broken our hearts, God. We've done that as fathers. I just pray for grace, God, in these relationships, reconciliation. Heal us, Lord. Help us to love our fathers well. And I pray that as we parent as fathers, that would be for your glory. Lastly, Father, we thank you for the spiritual dads that you've given us, those men who've, who've helped us discover more and more of your love through Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrifice and his death on the cross. We pray all of this in his merciful and beautiful name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.
that's what this next song sings of. So together, let's sing about the fact we have a good father. Who am I that the highest king would
of what you just sang and what we're about to sing, I'm going to read Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 39. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. We have victory when we sing in Jesus in the cross, so let's sing this song together.
Well, that's what we're here to celebrate this morning, that uh, we belong to Jesus and Jesus is ours. If we put our faith and our trust and our hope in him and pray that all of you've done that. Um, if you're uh, visiting here with us this morning, we're glad you're here. We're glad all of you are here, but uh, we're especially glad if you're visiting. If you are visiting with us, either here in person or, or online with live stream, uh, we're so thankful to have you with us uh, here today. And we pray that you'll be blessed and be built up and edified and strengthened spiritually uh, through our time here together. Uh, the uh, children's and middle school camp last week was uh, a glowing success. Uh, Cheryl and I drove down there uh, Tuesday evening to Camp Wow and uh, spent some time there with everyone. And it's just uh, a great time of fellowship together. I just want to thank uh, Connie Goodson and all the children's staff for helping put that together. And also Justin Kinsley, our pastor of student ministries and Addie Zander and all the, the student ministry leaders and just all the parents that went. It was just a, a very rich time for, for when Cheryl and I were there, just the singing and seeing all the, the children and the young people there worshiping the Lord and uh, the time of fellowship they had together was great. So we're very grateful for that and uh, thankful that God got everybody back safely. Um, happy Father's Day to all the fathers and grandfathers who are here. Uh, we love you. We appreciate all of you so much. There's a story I ran across this week that said, uh, after bringing their first baby home from the hospital, the wife suggested to her husband that he try his hand at changing diapers. Um, he said, I'm busy. He said, I'll do the next one. Well, the next time the baby was wet, the mother asked if he was ready to learn how to change diapers. He gave her a puzzled look and said, I didn't mean the next diaper. I meant the next baby. <laughs> well, dads are great, aren't they? I mean, I have all kinds of ways of getting out of stuff. But it's a beautiful sight in our church every week for me, and I'm so glad to have families back here because it's wonderful to see uh, fathers uh, sitting with their children. And, uh, you know, when you think about our country today and a lot of the struggles and the turmoil that we see, um, godly homes really ultimately are the only hope for our nation. It's really where it all starts, with families and homes and uh, with godly fathers um, who, who leave a legacy for their families. I was reading a book by James Merritt a while back, and he, he had this little story in there I like. He said, when former President George H.W. Bush was asked, what is your greatest accomplishment in life? He could have said being a fighter pilot in World War II. He could have said being a U.S. ambassador to China, the director of the CIA, the vice president of the United States, even the president of the United States. But he said this, my greatest accomplishment in life is that my children still come home. I like that. His children still come home. That was his greatest accomplishment. And all of us as fathers and grandfathers, we need to, to work hard and labor hard uh, to leave a legacy for our families. Well, let's pray together before we open uh, God's Word here this morning. Our Father, we come before you now as your people. We come humbly. And we come to you in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, that name that is above every name. And Father, we thank you that as we look out into our world today and we see what's happening, that uh, we have hope through Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ truly is uh, the hope of glory. Uh, Father, we, we look to you for our nation, <clears throat> for our leaders. Uh, Father, we pray for this turmoil and unrest to begin to subside. And uh, we pray that uh, people in our country of, of goodwill and those who love you and who know you, will be a great blessing to our country and to our neighbors and to our communities. Father, we pray that you'll use this time of turmoil to show us our desperate need for you in our lives and our families and our communities. Father, we don't have what it takes, Father, to make this country work without you and without your grace and your hand of mercy upon us. 
Father, as we come now and uh, get ready to open your word, we thank you for our fathers and our grandfathers. We thank you for them. We pray that you'll strengthen them. Pray that you'll give us a clear vision for our marriage and for our families. Father, now as we open your word, open our hearts and minds to your truth. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we began our summer series. Um, it's an exposition of 1 Corinthians 13. So if you have your Bible, if you'll take it and turn there with me. Uh, we've uh, called this series a more excellent way. We've kind of been informally calling it the summer of love. But to those words, uh, a more excellent way, come from the very last words of chapter 12 and verse 31. Those words are kind of a preface to chapter 13 where Paul says, I show you a still more excellent way. And now this is a great topic for Father's Day, really, this morning. fits in so well because we need to lead the way as fathers um, in our families in love and in our homes and our marriages. Uh, so this is a great topic, and I hope all of the fathers will take to heart this message this morning. Well, we introduced this study last week, and we're going to pick up this morning in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 13. But let me go ahead and read chapter 12 and verse 31 through chapter 13, verse 3. But earnestly desire the greater gifts. Or as, as I said last time, you could translate that, you are earnestly desiring the greater gifts. And I show you a still more excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Well, may the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts and lives here this morning. Uh, Coach Bobby Bowden coached uh, the Florida State Seminoles football team for many years, and he liked to inspire his team with stories. And uh, one of Bowden's favorite stories uh, centered on his uh, playing days in, in baseball, in college baseball. Uh, Bowden uh, had never hit a home run until one day in a game, he hit a ball right down the right field line, and it went down all the way to the right field corner. And so seizing the opportunity, he rounded first base and glanced over at the third base coach who was waving him on. So he, he runs around uh, second. As he's coming towards third base, the coach has given him the sign uh, to run and to take it all the way home and waving him on. And so coming down the stretch with the, the focus and the force of an Olympic sprinter, um, he, he hits home plate. And he had his first home run, an in-the-park home run. And there were high fives all around from his teammates and celebration. But in the midst of all the celebration, the pitcher took the ball, threw it over to the first baseman who touched first base, and the umpire called him out. He'd forgotten to touch first base in all of his excitement. Now, retelling that story, Coach Bowden would remind his players, if you don't take care of first base, it doesn't matter what else you do. And as this story reminds us, some things must be done before other things can be done at all. In life, as in baseball, first base first is an important principle. Um, some things give substance and significance and success to everything else uh, that we do. And love patterned after Jesus Christ is one of those things. According to 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul tells us love for God and love for others is a first base thing in the Christian life. I mean, you can hit a, a towering 500-foot home run over dead center field. 
And if you don't uh, touch first base, it's nothing but a big fat out. And in the same way, without love, nothing else we do really matters. Love is the great essential in life. It's the one indispensable thing. Last week, I quoted a man named Skevington Wood, who many years ago said, where love is present, it doesn't matter what is absent. Where love is absent, it doesn't matter what is present. One man put it like this. This is a great thought this morning. Think about this. Your greatest need is not money, fame, success, pleasure, a vacation, recreation, a better job. Your greatest need is love. That's true of every one of us here. The greatest need in your life and my life um, is love. Everything in our lives hinges on love. And that's the message of 1 Corinthians 13. Now, if there's one thing the Corinthians needed, we started in this last week, is they needed love. The Corinthian church was a church with a lot of conflict and chaos. Now, I gave you an outline of 1 Corinthians last week. The first four chapters uh, talk about um, division in the church. It's all about the divisions. They were kind of rallying around different human leaders. Chapters 5 and 6 focus on disorders in the church, um, sexual immorality and, and lawsuits and so on. In the beginning in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says, now concerning the things about which you wrote to me. So they had written Paul a letter asking him about some different topics. And he begins to go through those one at a time. Chapter 7, he talks about marriage and divorce. Chapters 8 through 10, he talks about eating meat sacrificed to idols and Christian liberty. Chapter 11, he talks about the Lord's Supper and how they were abusing uh, the Lord's Supper. And all of those problems, if you think about them, can all be traced back to lovelessness. That was the main problem at their church. And when we get to chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says in chapter 12, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts. So he's going to talk in chapter 12 about spiritual gifts. And he talks about them in chapter 12 and chapter 14, but sandwiched between those two chapters is chapter 13, uh, which talks about love. So it's in the context of spiritual gifts that Paul brings up the topic of love. Now, I didn't mention this last time, but I thought I would say this this morning. Some of you may not really know what a spiritual gift is. I'm talking about this. You're thinking, what do you mean? A spiritual gift is a spirit-given enablement to carry out some specific function with ease and effectiveness. So it's an ability, it's a divine enablement given to us by the Spirit of God. And it enables us to carry out some function with ease and effectiveness. When you see someone operating in the area of their gift, it should look easy. Now, it doesn't mean it's easy to do it, but they do it with an ease and they do it with effectiveness. In other words, when they do it, it has an impact. It has results. And by the way, if you want to look more at uh, spiritual gifts, it's kind of easy to remember. There's four main passages about spiritual gifts in the New Testament. There's two twelves and two fours, Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, and then Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. So those are kind of the main texts that deal with spiritual gifts. But the reason Paul writes here about spiritual gifts in between is the Corinthians were charmed by the, good, the gifts that felt good and made them look good. They turned ministry into kind of a talent show or a beauty contest or hero worship. A one man says this about the church at Corinth. He says they were territorially selfish, morally shameless, theologically reckless, and corporately thoughtless. 
In other words, they missed the point of ministry and they failed to understand that the gifts of the Spirit have to be governed by the graces of the Spirit. And so last time we covered two key points, the essence of love and the excellence of love. And the essence of love, we found out, is, is captured in that word agape. Ten times in 1 Corinthians 13, you have the word agape. And we said last time that the word agape was not used widely in the culture of that day. It was a very rare word. And so it's as if the writers of the New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, brought that word that was rarely used in Greek into the New Testament and filled it with deep meaning. That word agape in many ways was a new creation of Christianity. And of course, in the New Testament, it tells us that the essence of God is agape. Twice in 1 John chapter 4, it says, God is agape. And of course, agape love is a love defined not by culture, but by the cross. Um, It's Calvary love. It's a sacrificial, self-giving love that comes not from the nature of the one being loved, but the one who's doing the loving. So that's the essence of love. It's agape love. It's a willingness to sacrifice of yourself for the highest good of another person. We also looked last time at the excellence of love. Um, After presenting a a great uh, treatise on spiritual gifts, in verse 31, Paul says, but you are earnestly desiring the greater gifts. They were looking at the flashy, spectacular gifts, but he says, I show you a more excellent way. Paul says, let me show you a better way. I want to show you the more excellent way of love, which is the essential, indispensable ingredient for the Christian life. So Paul wants the self-centered Christians at Corinth to know there's a better way to live, and that is the lifestyle of love. Now, last time we left off with what I call the eminence of love. And we mentioned last time in verses 1 to 3, you have the priority of love, In verses 4 to 7, we have the practices of love, and verses 8 to 13 will be the permanence of love. So this chapter kind of breaks down, or this poem, into three paragraphs or three stanzas. And again, our focus is verses 1 to 3 this morning. Now, there are a lot of ways, if you want to make a point, if you're speaking to a group of people or talking to someone, and you really want to drive home a point, there are a lot of ways to do that. But the Apostle Paul here chooses a literary device known as hyperbole. Hyperbole is where you intentionally exaggerate things to make a point. It's a form of extreme exaggeration. So to make his point, Paul stretches a point. Now, hyperbole is not intended to distort the truth. When you're using hyperbole, you're intentionally exaggerating. So you're not, exa- not distorting the truth, but you're wanting to deliver the truth with a jolt that gets people's attention. So Paul wants us here in verses 1 to 3 to imagine a man who has the tongue of an orator. He has the mind of a scholar. He has the faith of a pioneer. He has the heart of a martyr. So it's as if Paul is saying... You all love these spectacular gifts and these showy gifts. Let's take things to the extreme and let's look at this. So Paul creates a spiritual superman, kind of a super saint who's got it all. So he takes all the things they're enamored with and rolls them all into one person. This person has the speaking gifts and the sign gifts and the serving gifts. And in these verses, in 1 to 3, he names five gifts, tongues, prophecy, knowledge, faith, and giving. 
It is giving of all you have uh, to the poor. And what he does is he takes these to their most spectacular expression. And his point is that without love, the exercise of these gifts is nothing. Did you notice here, he uses the, the first person. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I have all faith, he's making it very personal here in the first person. But the main point again is love is so essential, we're nothing without it. Now think about this. Living without love is like sewing with a needle without any thread. It's like writing with a pen that doesn't have any ink in it. I mean, it's like writing a, a, a song without any musical notes. It's like running a business with nothing in the profit column. It's like owning a bank without any money. Love must underwrite everything we do. So what we do is important, but who we are, he's saying here, is essential. And so to make this point, what Paul will do is he gives a series of conditional clauses and he's going to highlight four main gifts or traits and show that even if you have those without love, you're nothing. So notice in verse 1, we could call this ultimate speaking. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now, the Corinthians were really big on the gift of tongues. If you go back in chapter 12 and you read chapter 14, you'll see that. Now, when he talks about tongues here... There's difference of opinion about this uh, among Christians, but the view that I hold is the gift of tongues was an ability to speak a language that you'd never learned before. It wasn't just some ecstatic utterance or gibberish. It was an ability to speak a known language that you'd never learned before. And I get that from back in Acts chapter 2. The very first time that tongues are mentioned in the New Testament uh, the disciples are there. It says the Spirit comes upon them. They have tongues of fire upon them. And it says they began to speak the mighty deeds of God. And then what do, you, what do you see in the text? It says the people who were there says we all hear them speaking in our own languages. So they were languages that the disciples were able to speak that they'd never learned before. And so since that's the first use of tongues in the New Testament, I think that meaning carries forward in the other places where it's used. So what he's saying here is, if I could speak the tongues of men, if I could speak every language of every people group on the planet. Now, I did some research this week, and 3% of people in the world can read and speak four languages fluently. Some of us are still working on one, but there's four, 3% that can do four of them. If you can do five or more, uh, you're a polyglot is what, what it's called. Now, I read about a man um, named Zaid Fazah, born in Liberia, brought up in Beirut, now living in Brazil, who claims to be the world's greatest living polyglot who can speak and understand 59 languages. Now, I read some more about him and said they gave him a test, and he really wasn't that good at all of them. But anyway, he, he claims to be able to, to, to have 59. And people today love to learn foreign languages. There's all these tools out there like Babel and, and uh, Rosetta Stone, and, and people love to learn to speak a foreign language. But Paul is saying here, even if you could speak all the tongues of men, if you had the gift of tongues, we could speak every language. And without love, you're nothing. Now, Paul goes on here and ups the ante, goes even a step further. He says, let's say you could speak every known language of every people group on the planet, and you could also speak in the tongues of angels. 
You could communicate with the angels and speak their language. Now, I have no idea what language angels speak, but he's saying here, if you could do that. Now, some Christians have taught from this verse that it's encouraging us to actually speak an angelic language, to actually speak the tongues of angels. And others believe or take this passage to to carry the idea that speaking in tongues is actually an angelic language or a prayer language, that that's what this passage is saying. But again, remember, this is all hyperbole. You can't speak the tongues of angels any more than you could speak every language on earth. It's an intentional exaggeration to make a point. And he's saying, if you could do those things without love, then you're a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Now, the word noisy gong here is probably not we think of what we think of as a gong. Like a gong is just kind of a big piece of bronze or metal that hangs there, and you have a big mallet you hit it with, kind of like the gong show. Some of you that are older, if you remember that. You just kind of hit this thing, and just you know, one note kind of reverberates from it. That's probably not what this is talking about. Um, in the, uh, the city of Corinth was known for a bronze alloy that was produced there. And most commentators take the idea that this noisy gong was a, a resonating acoustic jar. They had these bronze jars or, or vases they would make that were like acoustic vases. And when someone uh, was in a large theater, as people would gather to come here singing or hear plays, these acoustic vases would be placed in niches around the periphery of the theater. And they would project the voices of the, the actors and the music. So they were an early form of kind of acoustic panels, acoustic amplifying systems. And so that's probably what he's talking about here. He says, if you speak the tongue of men and angels and you don't have love, you're just like a resonating jar or an amplifying system that just reverberates uh, the noise. And then he says, or a clanging cymbal. The word clanging there was actually used of people wailing at a funeral which is not exactly the most appealing sound. But he says it's just like music without notes. It's just a lot of noise. So he's saying even if you could speak every language on earth, and even if you could speak the language of angels, if you don't have love, it's just a nuisance and a nothing is all it is. Now he goes on in verse 2 and talks about ultimate skillfulness. He harks back here to chapter 12, mentions the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge, and the gift here of faith. So he says, if I have the gift of prophecy. Now again, a lot of people today hold the idea that the gift of prophecy still exists today. Um, If you look up the word, uh, the Greek word that's, that's translated prophecy in a lexicon, it means to speak divine revelation from God. That's what the word means. It means to be a mouthpiece for God. And I believe in the early church, before the scriptures were completed and and circulated around, that there were people who could speak directly for God as his mouthpiece. But I I don't want to go into this in detail, but one verse I'll give you is Ephesians 2.20, which says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Well, you know, today we're not looking for more cornerstones for the church. Jesus is it, right? He's the one and only cornerstone. And if he's the only cornerstone, then there's also just one foundation, which were the apostles and the prophets in the early church. 
So again, uh, we have a lot of uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who disagree about this, but that's my view, that, that prophecy and being able to be a direct mouthpiece for God was something that laid the foundation uh, in the church. But Paul says, even if I have the gift of prophecy, and he goes on then and says, and I know all mysteries and have all knowledge. The word all here in the Greek is emphatic. Now, we know again that he's speaking hyperbolically here about knowing everything or having all knowledge because down in verse 9, he's going to say, right now, we just know in part. So you can't know everything right now. Again, it's this hyperbole that he's giving. He's saying, look, if you know everything, if you have all knowledge, I mean, if you never lost one uh, episode of Jeopardy, in fact, if you never lost one question on Jeopardy, I mean, if you could run uh, the table on every category week after week, day after day on Jeopardy, I mean, you know everything. He's saying without love, it's still a big nothing. Back in uh, 1 Corinthians 8, we kind of have a, a, a foreshadow of this as Paul wrote this. He says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love builds up or edifies. If anyone supposes he knows anything, he's not known yet as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. He's saying, look, knowledge can make you arrogant, but love edifies. It's the old saying a lot of us have heard, you know, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. That's kind of what Paul's saying here in essence. Paul is not downplaying spiritual gifts or the importance of ministry in the church. Praise God for gifted believers. But his point is, spiritual gifts must be used in a loving way. And what matters is not how gifted we are, but how loving we are. Now think about this for a moment. Abilities without love can become liabilities. No matter how gifted you are, that ability can become a liability in your life if it's not exercised and carried out in love. God calls us to do everything in love, otherwise all is for nothing. Now, he moves on the end of verse 2 to ultimate spirituality. If you had the ultimate spirituality, absolute faith, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, this is uh, an echo back to uh, Mark chapter 11 where Jesus referenced a, a mountain-moving faith. And the spiritual gift of faith is the, the, the gift that some believers have to, to trust God for what seems impossible. Men like George Mueller in the church had that gift, George Mueller of Bristol. But it's a bold, robust, trustful faith. I was reading a book this week by Dale Burke on 1 Corinthians 13, and he says it like this to really make the point. He says, it doesn't matter if you have enough faith to say, Lord, you know, I'd really like a view of the mountains. So, Lord, I'm asking you to move one of the Rocky Mountains next to my home here in Southern California. Um, amen. <laughs> Suddenly, you hear a rumble. The earth shook, and as you opened your eyes, presto, the Rockies were outside your window. Even if you had the faith to relocate the ski slopes of Vail, the beaches of Florida, and the forests of New England to the deserts of Nevada to create your own paradise, your spirituality would be of no value to God. I mean, Paul's just, you know, stating in every way that he can. Because notice the end of verse 2. If you can do all of that, but you don't have love, Paul says, I am nothing. Now, do you know what the word nothing here means in Greek? It means nothing. <laughs> nothing is nothing, right? Knowledge is not enough is what Paul um, is saying to us uh, here in this passage. 
So look, ultimate speaking without love is nothing. Ultimate skillfulness without love is nothing. Ultimate spirituality without love is nothing. But just in case we haven't gotten the point, Paul employs one final hyperbole to drive home his point. In verse 3, if I give all my possessions uh, to feed the poor, he reaches the high point here in the climax. He says, if you are the world's greatest philanthropist, you take all of your possessions, literally here in the Greek it means to parcel out your property for food. You take everything you have and you begin to parcel it out bit by bit to provide for others in need. And then he reaches the high point here where he says, and I give my body to be burned, but do not have love. Now, some of your translations may not say that. The newer versions of the NIV say, if I surrender my body, uh, that I might boast. Now, again, I don't want to get into this in, in a lot of detail, but there are different manuscripts. You know, people would copy the originals of the, the, the scriptures, and they would make copies to be circulated. Now, you can imagine if you're a copyist and you sit there and copy for several hours, it's easy to kind of transpose letters sometimes and, and, and to make a few mistakes as you're copying. And so we have some manuscripts of 1 Corinthians that have a word that means to burn, and some of them have another word that means to boast. And it's just two letters that are different that you could easily see how a copyist could make that error. Most modern translations have, if I give my body to be burned. In other words, we've kind of reached the height here of the idea of martyrdom. But I just point that other out because some of your translations may have that I might boast instead of that I might be burned. But the point here is, if you go to the greatest extent of sacrifice you could ever imagine, without love, you're nothing. Uh, Gary Enrig says this. <clears throat> he says, all sacrifice is not love. I cannot love without sacrifice, but I can sacrifice without loving. I cannot love without giving, but I can give without loving. I can give my possessions, my time, and even my body without ever really giving myself without exposing my inner self to another, my behavior may be correct, but it's cold. And then he says this, whatever the motive, God's word tells me that without love, even the greatest act of self-sacrifice um, is worthless. So I hear what God is saying to us this morning. This is very important. God is not saying, if you do service for me and you don't have love, it's just diminished or downgraded or just impaired a little bit. He's saying, if you serve me, whatever you do for me, and it has a lack of love, it's nothing. It's zero. Now, that's a challenging, almost a frightening thing for us to think about here today. There's no real service or sacrifice to God without love. And again, Paul constructs this person here. This person in 1 Corinthians 13 is, is John Chrysostom, uh, Jonathan Edwards, uh, George Mueller, and Jim Elliott rolled into one person, a spiritual superman. And yet Paul says this man and his ministry, apart from the practice of love, is a big fat zero. So without love gilding everything that we do, we're nothing and we don't achieve anything. It's not going to have value and last. Now, I see some of you writing when I'm up here preaching, and I always assume you're taking great notes and writing down wonderful things I say, but some of you may be doodling. I don't know. You're sitting there drawing a little picture or whatever, and I hope you don't do that often. But if, you, if you're tempted to do that, especially this morning, I'd encourage you, you could take your bulletin, maybe to start up and begin to write zeros. 
Just one zero after another zero after another zero. You can cover the whole page if you want. And of course, when you do that, if you were to add all that up when you get done, what would it all add up to? Zero, right? Nothing. But if you go back and put a one before that first zero, that changes everything. You go from zero to, to 10, to 100, to 1,000, to 10,000, and so on. The zeros suddenly add up to an astronomical amount. And tragically, in the same way, you and I can fill the pages of our lives with so much that adds up to nothing, with the spiritual equivalent of just a bunch of zeros. Unless love stands at the front of all we do, it's all just a big fat zero. But love changes everything. Putting that one there at the beginning changes everything. So I want to encourage us today, before you take another step, why not stop and make sure that you're taking care of first base in the Christian life? Make sure you've touched first, because only then will the other things you do in life really matter. There's a great story. I'm sure some of you heard this before. It's a great story about the Apostle John. It's told by the fourth century theologian, Jerome, St. Jerome. And he tells about the Apostle John, who was the best friend of Jesus when he was on earth and one of the apostles. And when John was about 100 years old, about 100 AD, he was old and frail and unable to walk. And so his disciples would carry him to church every week to the gatherings of the believers. And uh, John died in Ephesus. And so there was a network of house churches in and around that area. The believers would gather, and Jerome tells the story that every week as they would bring John into the service, they would carry him in there. He would lift up his hand of blessing and offer a five-word sermon. Little children love one another. And this went on week after week and month after month, and some of the disciples got kind of weary of him just saying the same thing over again. And one of them said, Master, why do you always say this? And John replied, because it is the Lord's command, and if this only is done, it is enough. It's beautiful. Little children love one another. Now, we're going to pick up next time in verse 4, and we're going to begin to look at what love looks like, the description of love. But before we close here this morning, I want to mention one thing, and that is that only God can give us this kind of love we're talking about. He's the only source of it, the sole source. And it begins by accepting God's love in Jesus Christ into your life. The love of God expressed in Christ at the cross. Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's Calvary love. And we have to experience Calvary love and agape love ourselves from God in Jesus Christ before we can ever express it to others. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because he first loved us. So if you want to look at it this way, really first base ultimately is trusting in Jesus Christ and receiving God's love through him into your heart and life. So if you've never done that this morning, that's what you need to do. You'll never um, be able to express the agape love we're talking about until you've experienced that agape love in the person of Jesus Christ. One other thing, we're going to touch on this as we go along, but you can't produce agape love in your own strength. By trying, by working hard at it, by thinking about it, you can't produce it. Galatians 5 says, the fruit of the Spirit 
is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, so on. It's produced in us by the Holy Spirit. So it's as we yield our lives and we walk in the Spirit each day, the Spirit of God comes and takes over and produces in and through us this agape love. I love Galatians 5 where it says, keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step and walk in the Spirit, and the Spirit will produce this love in and through us. So a lot of people tell us to love, but only God can give us the power to do it. Only God can make you and make me a true lover. I've talked in my sermons before quite a bit about Amy Carmichael. She was from Northern Ireland, from Belfast. She traveled to India as a young woman and founded the Donavur Fellowship there. Um, she served as a missionary in India for 55 years with never, never taking a furlough. Uh, she rescued young girls there from temple prostitution, really from, from sex trafficking, if you will, from sexual slavery. Uh, later on, uh, the, the area she had there, the orphanages, um, accepted boys as well. But she poured out her love for these children and the people there in deep sacrifice. Um, at the age of 64, she suffered a fall, and she was basically bedfast for the final 20 years of her life. And as much as she sacrificed, and I think I can probably say this this morning, she probably, and in my case, certainly sacrificed more than, than any of us here ever will. But even in the midst of all that sacrifice, Amy Carmichael knew that without love, even that sacrifice that she gave was nothing. And she wrote a lot of beautiful poems. I'd encourage you to read them sometime. Uh, the one, The Flame of God, is one of my favorite ones. But she wrote one called Make Me a True Lover. She realized without love, as much as she would do, she was nothing. So here's, the, here's this uh, song or this poem, and, and we'll, we'll use this as our conclusion and a prayer as well. She says, Mender of broken reeds, O patient lover, tis love my brother needs. Make me a lover that this poor reed may be mended and tuned for thee. O Lord of even me, make a true lover. Kindler of smoking flax, O fervent lover, give what thy servant lacks, make me a lover. That this poor flax may be quickened aflame for thee. Lord of even me, make a true lover. May that be our prayer this morning and always. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we come before you now and we thank you for Jesus, the lover of our souls, the truest lover who gave his life for us at Calvary and showed us true agape love as he sacrificed himself for us. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted Jesus as their Savior, that they might do it now, that they might receive into their life Calvary love from Jesus Christ, the lover of their soul the one who paid the price for their sins at Calvary. And Father, for those of us who know you, I pray that you would make of us, Father, make even of us true lovers through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that our lives can count, that what we do in life won't be a big zero in the end, that it will have eternal value and eternal impact. And we'll have that impact, Father, to your honor and to your glory. Oh, Father, make of me, make even of me a true lover. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us and sing as we worship our Savior who loves us?
there, death to death and life to life for us through Jesus Christ. And uh, we pray that he's been lifted up and exalted here this morning in our lives. Uh, if you're visiting with us, if you go uh, out these doors, a little ways down on your right, there's a welcome center. And there's some folks there that'd love to greet you and give you some more information about our church. I'll be down front after the service. Our elders who are present uh, will be down front as well. We'd love the opportunity to get acquainted. And maybe if you have some burden this morning or some need, we'd love to pray with you as well. Let's bow our heads now for the benediction as we leave here with the Lord's blessing upon us. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. God bless you.